What's up, y'all? My name is Jake. And my name is Carl. And you're listening to Do You Even Lift Bro? Men Exercising Social Justice. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Today, we have a guest that will be joining us for this discussion. Say hi to the peoples, Chris. Hi, peoples. <laughs> we'll get to know Chris later in this episode when we interview him more directly. But right now, we're going to talk about porn. How are you, Carl? I, I'm stoked, man. I've been looking forward to this particular podcast for so long. I know it's really weird to be excited about pornography, but we're <laughs> talking about pornography. We're not going to be making any. We're not going to be showing any we're not going to be listening to any but i do think that one of the most important conversations that men can have if they want to think about and talk about social justice is to think about and talk about how we consume porn so i'm just it's early in the morning but god damn it i'm excited how about you jake um i'm pretty excited to be here i'm really happy to be here actually even though i'm pretty tired but i just love doing this work so something to look forward to so what are your thoughts about porn carl uh i have a ton I um I think we've been pretty generally like critical and down on porn, if you will, throughout this podcast. But we try to keep bringing it up as a point of conversation in terms of media consumption for men, because it's usually left out when we say, oh, media has influence on the way we think. We tend to leave out the concept of porn. Right. Um, we'll talk a lot about it later with Chris, but the amount of porn consumption globally is ridiculous. Like it is insane. And every time I share the stat of there's a, there's a porn site that does a great job of tracking the traffic on their site. And in 2016, we consumed 5,246 centuries worth of pornography just in one year. And every time people hear that, well, it depends on the group. Some people like just have their mouth open aghast. And then when it's a group of men that I say that to, they start cheering. And so Jesus. when we, yeah, <laughs> when we think about pornography, it has to be with a critical lens. And I'm really excited to try to model that um, in our conversation today. So how about you, Jake? Um, yeah, I think within, in my experience, pornography has just as like a growing man been kind of just this normal thing to do as a, as a boy, as a man. And so then thinking critically about it and engaging it in a different way and understanding that there is a lot of violence around it and a lot of power within it. For me, pretty mind boggling and mind blowing. And it can impact do different impacts for different people and different men. Mm -hmm. I think we'll get into that a little more later. So sure. And I think we're going to take this idea of porn and turning it into a series of podcasts. And so we want to start the series of podcasts with what I would consider more of an expert on at least the effects of porn as Chris over here furrows his brow and worry because he's like, I have to come up with expert <laughs> things to say now. Um, but nonetheless, Chris and I have worked together for a couple of years now trying to bring conversations about porn to students here at Colorado State University. So I'm really excited to get his insights. So Chris, if you don't mind, could you say your name, your title, and some identities that you hold? Yeah. So my name is Chris Leck and I work here at CSU at the Counseling Center. My clinical credentials are licensed clinical social worker. And so, yeah, and I, I've been here at CSU at the Counseling Center working, um, seeing students, you know, working on mental health stuff. I do a lot of work around uh, drugs and alcohol and addiction stuff, process addictions, as well as kind of substance addictions, you know, things like uh, video games and pornography and gambling and things like that, as well as all the substance use stuff. Um, yeah. And identities for me, I mean, it, yeah, I think it's important to know that I, I identify as a cis white heterosexual male. Um, I was brought up in the Midwest and outside of Chicago. And so I very much feel like a kind of a very generic version of a um, white guy. Cool. 
Thank you. Thank Thank you for sharing. Can you talk a little bit more about your connection with masculinity work, particularly on this campus? Yeah. You know, so when I came to campus, I came as a a graduate student in the School of Social Work here, and I did my internship at uh, the Counseling Center. And I noticed that when I started working there as an intern, that I got a lot of men referred to me. And I hadn't done a lot of critical analysis around masculinities and and, um, hegemonic masculinities and all. All, um, all of that kind of stuff. And so when these men were coming into my office looking for counseling, these were men who were in a lot of pain and identifying themselves as needing help. And so I noticed, I was like, wait, what's going on? Because I was getting flooded with men on my caseload. And so I went over to, it's called the Women and Gender Advocacy Center now, but back in the day it was the Office of Women's Programs and Studies. And so I went over to talk to those people and I wanted to find out more about gender and more about masculinity. And there were some folks there who were really working hard on doing men's programming and things like that. And so I just started hanging out at that office more and more and started to really become much more aware around hey, how are we socialized as men? What are the impacts that this socialization is having on us, on our mental health, on our relationships? And then all that concept, the stuff around privilege and power and like how is privilege and power influencing the way that the world treats me and the way that I see the world? And so I just wanted to explore more and more and more and more. And so we, I got involved with what was then um, the Men's Project. It's kind of evolved to, uh, through um, a somewhat painful process into um, what's now Men in the Movement doing fantastic work. And so so, yeah, I was involved early on in this. I think it's worth noting Chris is part of the legacy of men's programming here. He'd probably say for better or for worse. I would say for better. Um, if there wasn't a foundation there, then we wouldn't be where we are today. So, but anyway, let's dig into this idea of porn. So, Chris, what do you, what is the definition of porn to you? I mean, I think it's a really good question and it's a really good place to start. Like, what is pornography and what is pornographic? And I think, I, mean, I think we'll ultimately come up with what our working definition is here. Sure. But I think it's important for people to know like different things are considered pornographic or obscene to different people that a lot of people have kind of different experiences with porn. If we're, if we're using a porn definition that says that it's material, whether that's video or photographs or literature or something like that, that is intended to sexually stimulate somebody, we can look at Hardy's commercials and we can look at Carl's Jr. in Colorado, but Hardy's, yes. Oh, my bad. (laughs) It's all good. (laughs) That's right. Just for the people, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Carl's Jr. commercials and in music videos and like all kinds of things and lots of marketing kind of plays on our. Um, sexual stimulation in order to sell us something. So is that stuff, do do you want to count that as pornographic? I think when we get into obscenity laws, so like I was in the airport and when you walk past the newsstand at the airport, the pornographic magazines have a cover over them because they don't want people to access that material accidentally. Then those things are now considered obscene or they are considered pornographic to the point that we don't want anybody under the age of 18. For some reason, we picked that as like at 18. Once you turn 18, then you can access that material. Theoretically, I mean, the internet changes all of that for sure. So I I think, yeah, working definition for us around, you know, it's material. And I think it's the intent of the producers that is the important piece of this. The intent of the producers is to sexually stimulate people. We can take anything and, you know, I mean, 
for those of us who kind of grew up and had access to a Victoria's Secret catalog or I'm dating myself because these are catalogs <laughs> that came in the mail. I can take any material that wasn't intended and turn that into a sexual experience. But I think for us for today, material that's intended by the producers to sexually stimulate people. Right. And that blurs the lines a little bit. If we go back to Carl's Jr. commercials of like Paris Hilton basically giving a burger a blowjob, is the intent of a producer to sell Carl's Jr. or is the intent of the producer to sexually stimulate or is it both? And so even within that definition, we can still expand how much unwillingly our society in the U.S. particularly is consuming pornographic material. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's important to note if mainstream culture is very much inundated with pornographic images, then what are the images? is that men in particular are seeing behind the scenes when they go seek out material that is produced with the intent to, for men specifically, uh, heterosexual men, to, to masturbate to. Mm-hmm. So then for the, the purposes of our podcast moving forward, let's call the definition of porn is or mainstream porn, at least, is what is something that is created for sexual stimulation, which we're going to add just so happens to very much target cis, heterosexual, and white men. Sure. I think, I mean, yeah, that's what I, I furrowed my brow at the word expert because um, there's so much pornography out there and so many different kinds of pornography. If I have any area of expertise, it's in working with men who have identified pornography as a problem okay. in their lives. And those are the that, that's where I've spent years and years working with people. And so I have an awareness and some knowledge about porn, but especially around mainstream pornography, which is designed for white, cis, hetero men. There's a ton out there. And um, I think some of it, it, well, I think the intention of the producers might be really around education or Mm. expanding awareness or including helping people feel included. But yeah, I think, I don't, I I guess I I kind of trailed off there, but (laughs) I think it's, it's important for folks who are listening to this to know that there's a lot of different kinds of pornography and we don't want to throw everything into the same boat under the word pornography. But when we're going to do our critical analysis as you know, men, especially in this room, we're going to be looking at the porn that is predominantly consumed and it was consumed by and intended for white cis hetero men. I think what you were saying, Chris, is like we need to distinguish like we're not necessarily presenting that porn is bad. Porn as a whole umbrella is bad. We're not necessarily doing that. And we want to complicate this notion of porn as the way Jake and I have been talking about it previously in this podcast, which is it's universally pretty bad. And we want, we're here to kind of sort of complicate that because there's a lot of different complicating factors. Well, sure. I mean, just like lots of things, is porn inherently in itself bad? I feel like the good bad distinction actually gets us into way more trouble. People can pick that apart. What are the consequences of pornography use? That's what I want to talk about. Both the benefits and the negative parts of it. It's too easy. And I think this is part of the problem um, with the discourse that we've had so far about pornography, not on this podcast, but just in this country is you have to get into one of two camps. Porn is good. It does all these good things or porn is bad and it has this negative impact on other people. It's an, it's a, it's too black and white to be useful in any way. I think like Carl and I have these conversations about critiquing different things, whether that stuff about like problematic media within like football or something like that. I think we're, if we get into like that binary of good and bad, then we only are this, I'm trying to think of like, how am I similar to what I critique? So how am I almost like 
<laughs> engaging in the hypocrisy of what I'm critiquing. For me, it would be like, I critically analyze and think about how there's problematic nature within porn, but it doesn't always stop me from consuming it. Right. And I that feel like, sense? yeah, it makes tons of sense. I feel like for me, that's like the crux of what masculinity is, is hypocrisy, is me having these feelings with this intent and these behaviors, which are in contradiction to that. Yeah. Like so much of my experience of my own masculinity is contradiction. It's this holding these, these, uh, the duality, the dialectics of these things of that. I have these values, this intention, and then these behaviors, which conflict with that. This is what men, what men do. And this is where we see excuses that people make and rationalizations and justifications and all that stuff to make these explain aways for behavior that we, some, at least some folks inherently know is problematic. So what is it that you want to talk about, Chris? Back to that piece of that conversation about it's not super useful to think about porn in only one of two ways that it's either all good or it's all bad is it's not a useful discussion. And so I think lots of times when I'm talking with people, I want to talk to them about what function does it serve? Because there's a lot of benefits to it. I think it's really important to recognize those and, and start there. And there are some sex therapists out there that are prescribing pornography use for people's sexual relationships to enhance them, to improve them, to increase the satisfaction that folks are feeling who are engaging in sexual activity. I also think it's, it's though the intention may not be around education, people are going to pornography for educational purposes that I want to figure out what is it actually supposed to look like? Because I might not get that kind of education from my family or from my school system or something like that. I might not get that. So I'm going to porn to see, well, what do people look like underneath their clothes? And what is the actual process of sex supposed to look like? Because I feel pretty insecure about it. And if I were ever to engage with another person in some sort of sexual activity, I don't want to look like I'm a complete novice at this thing. So yeah, I want to see like insert tab A into slot B, <laughs> remove, repeat, repeat. Like, like I want to just see what the functionality, what it, what it looks like. Uh, and, and so I think that's super helpful. I think other people, we see depictions of sex were, were really prudish in this country and not sex positive in a lot of mainstream media. We edit that stuff out. And so if people want to look at what do alternative versions of sexuality look like to what I'm being presented with, it could be super useful. I think about folks who maybe they're in a situation where partners in the same, who are presenting in the same way, gender wise, um, I might not get to see a lot of that in the community, or I might not get to see that my family might be not into that. So looking at gay porn is super useful and like, oh, that's what it looks like or, oh, this is what it fe might feel like. And I think for gender nonconforming folks and trans folks, some pornography is a good way to see what those things might actually look like, to see what a positive sexual relationship could look like. And it could be really affirming for people. I think there's some benefits to pornography use. There's definitely efforts of that to happen, right? To get more representation in pornography to help more marginalized groups where there's like just a ton of fetishization and ton of racism and misrepresentation in pornography. I think there's an, a lot of effort of producers to come up with content that is affirming of marginalized communities. And I think that's cool. I don't know if that's necessarily the solution, though, to pornography. I'm mm -hmm. not sure. For sure. There's companies out there that are from top to bottom are run by women and the intention of the pornography is for women and the wages that are paid are appropriate wages. Like there's a lot of pro-feminist pornography out there. Absolutely. I think that, I think that's possible. Like you said, I don't know if that is the solution. I don't actually, oh, I, 
I don't know what the solution is, but nobody knows what the solution is. I was just thinking about the accessibility of that pornography. Um, right. Does it have to be paid for, which is like in some ways can be good. Um, but also if you were to Google it, would it come up? And so I think there's like those kind of two elements that I think are fascinating is that like if we have pro-feminist porn out there, is it accessible for people that can't afford it? And is it also like accessible so then people know that it's there? And I think that's kind of the hard part. And I think for for some men that kind of want to break out of maybe having an addiction. I don't know if that's the best way to go about it. It might be a better way to kind of break out of those, like seeing the power dynamics within pornography. But if you're sitting down in front of a computer and then you want to watch porn, is the power ever going away? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause that's like, it's only for you. That makes sense. It's not for like you and the person that you want to have sex with because you're by yourself that goes into conversations about why men consume porn right like i'm not totally sure we're there yet like there's stats on the same website i referenced earlier about like men in particular going to pornography when their favorite football team is losing the super bowl and so that begs the question like why would you go to pornography in those moments and I think that's kind of more of what you're talking about. Yeah. Jay. But I do think uh, you make, you bring a re- up a really good point. If I'm, you know, some kid in uh, a rural community and I'm thinking about gender identity other than the one that people have ascribed to me and I Google trans pornography or trans sex, then the first things that are coming up are not necessarily going to be those affirming things. That's going to be that fetishization of maybe trans identity and sexual activity and stuff like that. For sure. Okay. So I'm thinking about how if you are in that circumstance, even because I think sometimes pornography creates a sense of loneliness for some men, not all men. Um, saying that um, but I think it creates this loneliness to the point where like the only time you feel vulnerable you just go to pornography to cope with that vulnerability or that pain or that suffering rather than like saying like going up to your friend that happens to be a dude and say hey this is what's going on with me and pornography was the only pole that I could go to totally because I think pornography and pornography use and masturbation can be a substitute for intimacy and vulnerability, like you're saying, Mm -hmm. right? And so if that's the place that I go, that's the retreat. Pornography is really, um, for a consumer, can feel really empowering, at least in the moment. There's tons of pieces about power, not just in the scene that's being depicted by the people, you know, on on the screen or whatever, but also in the act of consuming pornography that I get to click, 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 and I can have whatever it is that I want. I can have it for little or no money whatsoever. I get to, you know, say um, what the people look like and when it starts and when it stops and what's going on in the scene. I get to watch people in their most vulnerable situation doing an intimate act. There's something that feels very powerful. So if I feel powerless, if I feel like crap because my team is losing in the Super Bowl, I can go to someplace and I can get those feelings of power. And I think we see this over and over and over in lots of versions of masculinity that when we feel powerless, we'll do things to help ourselves feel powerful. And pornography is one of those easy places to go. It's so reliable. I remember, I still remember like one of the very first videos I've ever seen that I would consider pornography. And that's 20 years ago. You know, I still very vivid in my mind in terms of the actual scene that I was consuming. And I remember those feelings of first like engaging with pornography with my boys. And this was back in the days of like 
dial up internet. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, like that sound still haunts me, but the actual video. <laughs> Is that a sexual trigger for you? Like you hear that and you're like, oh yeah. Like, uh, no. <laughs> and luckily that sound you, doesn't exist as much. If you did it over and over and over again, and we're, if we're talking like hundreds or thousands of times, um, it's Pavlov's dog, you know, like they hear the bell and the dogs start to salivate. You hear dial up and you're like, oh, time to get busy. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Uh, well, but I think we of, should try it. Do you, ha- no, can you access it. that sound and just put it on and let's just see, we'll put you into a meditative state. We'll push the button. I think I would start typing because I did a lot of AIM back then. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. Yeah. AOL instant messenger. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Jake doesn't even know. Yeah. What nobody is. knows. Yeah. I, <laughs> This podcast is turning into a whole dude's podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I have a tendency to do that. Okay. Uh, The point is, it was also like before internet for me, it was kind of a community activity where like me and three or four of my friends were part of our daily goal was to find pornography that we can go and like consume in our basements as a group, as a group, man, like, cause we could only get one video. So we would all watch it together and then take turns in the bathroom. I don't know. I've just, it's, it was a fascinating process back then. So Mm. the evolution of pornography and the way that it's pushed into like private spaces and behind the scenes consumption, I think shouldn't be underestimated. Like I see men consuming pornography on the bus these days and that's the level of accessibility it has and it has to have an impact and that's why i think it's important to talk critically some of this spectrum of consumption that chris is talking about where when we talk about porn we have to consider the positive uses of it all the way to the problematic uses of it and everything in between because mm-hmm. i think to kind of to get to the next piece of the conversation so there's the camp who are like super pro porn will defend porn and then free there's speech. free speech and it has a ton of advantages and benefits benefits to people. And then there's this kind of camp that's like, well, it's, if anything, it's innocuous that it doesn't actually have an impact on people, um, that it's fantasy that, um, right. That, that one I think is harder to defend, right. That it has no impact on people. I think that we have way too much anecdotal evidence to say that there's not impacts on people. Well, I'll say right now, like I've observed acts in porn and I've asked my partners to like, can we do this? I didn't tell her that it comes from porn because there was a shame around it. But absolutely, like it is next to impossible, I I think, to say that pornography does not have impacts in real life. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are studies in like domestic violence shelters and stuff where something like 60 percent of sexual abuse within intimate partner violence there's some element of pornography being used in it, right? So I think Chris is right in the sense that there's a lot of information out there, anecdotal and some studies that show how deep the impact is that pornography has in real life. Cool. So can, maybe we can get into that piece of the conversation around what, what are some of these negative impacts? Because it's really important to be aware of some of this stuff. And this is where me and my professional life, clinically, men are coming in and saying, hey, I could use help. I have tried to cut down on my pornography use or I'm worried about my pornography use. I don't feel like I have a ton of control over it, or I feel like I want to use it, but I want to use it in this way and limit the impacts of pornography. And I feel like that's where a lot of the work that I've been doing comes in. So what are some of the, I mean, I mean, I know you can't talk specifically about your patients, but like, what are some general observations that you have or 
general insights that you have mm-hmm. working with men who are trying to work on their addiction to porn. For sure. For sure. And so, yeah, I think it's important that, you know, the things that I'm going to be talking about, these are, you know, generalizations and I'm not breaking confidentiality in any way. And a lot of this stuff has been written about anyway. And so I don't think, uh, I don't think I'm violating any confidentiality with um, the people that I worked with over the years. But I think a lot of times men come in and they're, for some men, sexual activity with another human, another person isn't becomes less exciting that some folks have identified, you know, identify like, Hey, I need pornography to be part of my sex life. Or I have partners come in male or female partners saying, Hey, the person that I'm in love with that I've been having sex with is less interested in having sex with me now. And I think it's because of their pornography use. There's usually when I know Carl, you and I present on this often enough that people usually come up afterwards and talk with us in private, both people who are talking about pornography, but a lot of times it's the partners of people yeah. who are using pornography who are saying, I'm worried about this. How do I talk to them about this? Because I'm noticing an impact that seems to show up a lot. That's a really common one that I think people come in with. I think another one that I have seen um, for folks that I've worked with is it's in my head and I am having a hard time controlling when it's in my head and when it's not in my head. And when I'm walking around campus or I'm when I'm out on the town, that pornographic images flash into my head and I'm looking at people's bodies or I'm looking at people's body parts. I'm focusing on people's body parts and I can't stop that or I can't control it. It's like an impulse that happens and it didn't used to happen. It didn't used to be this way. It's much more pronounced than it was. There's a story in the book Pornified, I think, uh, Pamela, Pamela Paul, Pamela Paul, where she interviews a judge, a court judge. And the judge was like, there was a time where I had consumed porn the night before. And then the woman on the witness stand looked a little bit like that porn and I, I couldn't keep the images out while I was on the stand like hearing the case. I and mean, so that's sort of the level of impact we're talking about in terms of men consuming porn like all over the place. And I think it's just really important to think about this lack of control of the images that pop into our heads through the consumption of pornography. I also think about how because we did talk about how like pornography is probably sometimes the, only, the first time we think of, get to learn about sex and we get to think about it almost freely as men. And so so I think about how some men just think that's the only way sex is. And so then that's before like they actually have a sexual encounter. So then when they actually have, when they have sex with any person in their lives, then they don't get that, that their expectations are like automatically different. Do you have any maybe experiences or thoughts around that, Chris? Heck yeah. When, when we've done presentations and we've anonymously pulled the audience, where did you learn about sex? More than half of the audience usually says pornography, that I learned about sex from pornography. I may have learned a little bit from my older sibling or from my parent or from friends or something like that. But I learned about sex from pornography is true for a lot of people. Okay, so great. So if we make a list of everything I ever learned about sex, I learned from pornography, what would be on that list? If that were true, like if we just did pornography and we're talking about the porn that I can click on relatively quickly and easily. So mainstream pornography, the kind of pornography that we talked about earlier. What are those things that are on that list? It's almost exclusively heterosexual. I don't know. Men can, they go forever and ever and ever. And when they come, it's just a ton of liquid that comes out. I think, yeah. Shapes of bodies. Like Mm -hmm. these are what bodies look like. There's not a huge variety in terms of what people's bodies look like, whether that's the amount of hair that they have on their body or 
I don't know, the size of their body. It's pretty rigid to the point that if you're looking at something that feels like more of a quote unquote natural look, that's almost a fetishization right. at this point. Mm-hmm. That's a specialty area if I want to look at something because the generic is what I will typically see. And it's this body type with this hairstyle, with this chest size and all that kind of stuff. So I think you start to hone your expectations. I don't even know if some of the things that I like, whether I'm, that I'm attracted to, I actually am attracted to, or if it's just something that I've been socialized Mm. over and over, but this is what is attractive, whether that's in porn or just in media, this is what's attractive. And now I'm like, oh, well, I guess that's what attractive is. Like we can never go back to the beginning because we're always socialized because we're bombarded with all of these images and they're telling us what people should look like. They're telling us what our sex should look like. And then, you know, take that. And then if I can't duplicate that in the bedroom, then, well, what's wrong with me or what's wrong with my relationship or what's wrong with my partner? Mm, or am I, I'm not man enough. When I think about real life sex and the necessity for a ton of conversation around that, conversation about consent, making it like a two person thing, doing it sober and enjoyably using condoms and contraceptives, like none of that I think exists in, in pornography. Even if it did exist in pornography, I know for myself, I just skip over that anyway. Like I don't want to actually listen to you two talk about consent. I just want to see you two. And so even thinking about the lessons, the other, the ancillary lessons, not just the act itself of sex, but some of the ancillary lessons that we learn around sex through pornography, it can be pretty problematic too. Mm -hmm. And I think about like how even like I've talked to men about sex and it's like, they're like, what's a dental dam? It's like, you don't know what that is. (laughs) And so then I'm almost like, okay, pornography is not teaching maybe the right skills to have a sexual encounter and also the safe ways to do it too. Um, mm-hmm. like you said. And so, so then almost like condoms are like candy to people rather than like, they're actually essential for our own well-being and other people's well-being. I think one of the other lessons, if we, everything I learned about sex, I learned from pornography is that women are always available. And always that say yes. even if, the, and even if they say no, if I'm good enough at what I'm doing, they will acquiesce in the end. Yeah. And I think that's freaking dangerous. Yep. And I think in, um, it was, uh, the John Krakauer book, Missoula, uh, which is all about sexual assault on a college campus. One of the defenses of one of the perpetrators was, well, I was just trying to duplicate this thing that I had seen in a pornographic film, just the duplication of it. But in real life, it's uh, illegal and <laughs> unbelievably problematic, hurtful, damaging, all those kinds of things. If you were to take so many of the things out of pornography, which is this, I understand, fantasy world that's not intended... <sighs> People will say like it's not intended to represent real life, but it's this thing that is this pornographic film is representing something that happens in real life in this fantastical way that then I, as the consumer, am trying to duplicate this fantasy representation of a real thing in a real way in my life. But it's like horribly, horribly hurtful, damaging and downright we've we've made that because i think this is where race shows up for me as well like so so many of the things that you see are unbelievably racist and they can get away with it in pornography and you could never you would never want to talk about another human being in the way that they talk about human beings especially minoritized based on race human beings anywhere else yeah the porn world is the only world that you can like 
legitimately just get away with the most racist garbage, like just horribly racist and people don't care. And I think that's yeah. another indication. Well, I mean, people care, but the people who consume it don't necessarily care. And I think that's another indication of how mainstream porn in the United States, at least, is absolutely directed toward white men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then I think about if the people that are consuming it don't care, they're never going to care in the, once they step out of that right. realm of watching porn or consuming porn. I think that's kind of an impact that I've seen and it's super palpable even on a college campus to really see it. Even seeing men watching porn in class. Yeah. Like I've fun. seen that and I'm just like, what What are you doing? <laughs> Go home. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like what are you doing? Are you bored? So it's not even sex it's like not even sexual stimulation yeah. at that point. And so like I don't it's the way it's consumed, I like I'm at a loss at this point when I see men in public consuming pornography on their phones. Like I I was like, what what's the point anymore? of you doing that. Hmm. I don't know the answer. Yeah. Are they about to go to the bathroom? Off to, yeah. By themselves still, somewhere in a public bathroom. Really? And is it just like, yeah, is it like habitual? So it's just a, something that it's just a habit that's built up was for it a, a very long time. And then it's just viewed as this like normal thing for them now. Was it a dare? Like, are you just trying to basically mark your territory by being able to watch porn in a classroom? Like, is that a show of your manhood? I think there's a lot of really deeply socialized and uncritical. I don't know, man. It's, it's, and I don't, <laughs> Literally. Okay, so I, and I don't want to like overly shame folks. Cause there might be yeah. folks who are sitting in class and they're watching porn on their phone and they, they might not want to, it might be a real struggle for them so that, and maybe I'm making excuses for people, but so there's so much shame and so much stigma. And so if somebody really is struggling to the point that they can't stop themselves from watching porn when they do, like if, if the intent is like, I don't want to be watching porn in public. Like, I don't think this is a good idea. This doesn't fit with who I think I am and what my value system is. And yet they're still doing it. That's a really real experience experience for people. And that's where I come in as the counselor, like <laughs> come, come, back. come, yeah. talk, come talk to me. <laughs> um, cause if your behaviors are, are not in line with your values and you really want to do something about it, like, okay, let's talk, let's see with it, what we can do. Mm-hmm. I think one of the responses that I hear a lot from like the pro porn people is that this is fantasy land. Pornography land is fantasy land. And we are smart enough to be able to tell the difference between fantasy land and real land. And that there's a distinction there. So I can watch pornography with these horrible power dynamics, um, people getting hurt that you can never reproduce this in real life. Some of the really racist things or are happening in pornography. And I'm smart enough to where I can say that's fantasy land. That's like people flying. I fantasize about flying. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Like, and, and, but I can't really fly. And so here in the real world, I'm able to think about things, feel a different way. I'm curious to what y'all's responses when when you hear that piece i think porn has this incredible cycle of immediate consumer feedback in terms of i want more of this or this is what i want and then that gets created if there wasn't a demand for incredibly like racist depictions of brutish black men gangbanging a a tiny white woman if there wasn't demand for that then it wouldn't be made and so when i think about that argument that this is fantasy pornography is too real because it's like real bodies like humans flying that's a stupid analogy (laughs) why is it a stupid (laughs) analogy like like that's fantasy land or like me dreaming of i wish i could fly or wish it could be uh you know a knight in shining armor and fighting dragons like so much of video games are 
me fantasizing about being able to do that thing. I mean, okay, I don't play a lot of video games anymore, but like, you know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the same argument of like, if I put myself in a video game and act a hero, I definitely put myself in a porn and act the porn out in my brain. I don't know if I'm able to distinguish, like, I don't, (laughs) I can imagine that that's actually something that can happen in real life because it's a sexual act between two human beings. I think men can say that way easier than they can do that. Like, I think it's a, it's solid in concept and in theory, but I think it's really, really, we know that never translates into like theory, never translates into practice that seamlessly. I think it's hard. Yeah. I think, I think it's hard for me as well in that I feel like a lot of fantasy, at least for me as like a cis hetero white dude, is that like, it's all like center in some kind of like power and violence. Yeah. Like if I were to dream that I was a Jedi, like as like a little kid, I had a lightsaber. Therefore that's a weapon. Therefore the violence could happen. Okay. So it's like, my thinking is like, at least as like, as cis hetero white dudes, not all of them, but for a majority of the part, even socialized as like thinking about fantasies, it's about like being the best or being the hero or having some sort of status, some having some mm. kind of way of power. That's, I think, what we couch as fantasy in this world. And it's hard to kind of be like, okay, yes, but there's something different. I think about even like now that people fantasize about video games like people dress up in the different characters but are they like characters that like love each other and have like friendships and stuff (laughs) no it's like usually people that have weapons and have some sort of power or some sort of violence tied to them rather than like we all love each other and like (laughs) want to be good people to each other rather than like i just think about like overwatch as a thing that people love to cosplay because it's they're, they want to carry out this fantasy of being a different being, a different character. Well, you're, and you're kind of making the argument that violent video games is part of the cause of school shootings. Like, I wouldn't go of, that far, but I think like we couch fantasy, I think as men and boys to be this powerful being mm-hmm. rather than like being a good friend to others or gotcha. being caring or being something other than like having a weapon and being powerful. Right. I think ultimately it comes back to that question of like, if it's fantasy and that's an escape hatch that lots of pornography folks will use, that this is a fantasy, they're saying we can tell the difference. Come on, we're smart enough human beings. This is like, you know, being a Jedi to imagine you're being a Jedi by imagining pornography. And then we go back into the real world and then we just have our real lives. And that those two things are totally separate experiences. And Carl, you're calling bullshit. Yeah. And saying that's not true because it's too close. It's it's a representation of something that we do in real life, that we want in real life. And th- there are human beings. I don't. Yeah. So I guess that, that's yeah, I guess that's kind of the point that I was getting to is like, at what point does that argument fall apart? I think pretty quickly. And we talked a little bit about it earlier. If it's just fantasy, then we would never hear partners worry about what their male partners are doing. It very much impacts relationships. And we wouldn't have story after story after story after story of men saying, I can't have sex with real people anymore without thinking about porn. Mm-hmm. I've played it out a bunch in my own life of like, oh, I haven't thought about having sex that way before. Let me ask my partner if we can do this. I think that it's so flimsy. And I think holding on to that argument is a representation of how much, how real it is for them. Like, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like doth protest too much type of argument. (laughs) Sure, sure. They 
like producers of porn and pro porn folks need this argument to maintain the industry, this multiple billion dollar industry. Um, I don't know. I just. Well, and I think there, there are people and this is where it's super individual. There are people who can consume a ton of pornography and they probably can keep it in. This is fantasy realm and this is real realm. And there might be individuals that can do that. Just like there are people who can go out and I don't know, some people can drink alcohol and some people just can't without suffering tons of consequences. So there might be, they might be able to find, you know, anecdotal evidence, just like we are finding anecdotal evidence saying this is not problematic. This has never shown up. I have never asked my partner for this and I'm watching this kind of pornography. There might be people that we have to make space on the spectrum that there are people out there that that is a true statement for. I don't, I think it's, yeah, like I said, I I don't think I can say everybody who watches pornography is going to have this kind of outcomes on their life. We don't, we can't say that. It's just, there's just too many other variables. At, at work in there. Another piece that I wanted to talk about was kind of one of the other kind of inherent experiences of men and masculinity is this sense we said before that, you know, we can use pornography to feel powerful. But then like you were saying, Jake, then I look at, oh, this is what a, a real quote unquote real man does, how long he lasts, what his body looks like, what the response is from the partner. And if I don't do that, if I can't do that, well, what does that mean about me? Am I Am I not a man then? Am I less of a man? And so like kind of the idea of masculinity or all these rules, we've all done like the man box activity enough to know that there are rules for what a quote unquote real man is. They are either impossibilities. There are too many contradictions. The ultimate experience of that is feeling more insecure. Yeah. And then what I do with that insecurity is jump in even harder, trying to cultivate, no, 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 I really want it. And rather than throwing out these rules of how, what a real man is supposed to be, rather than doing that, I just do it more hoping that at some point I'll achieve that idea of this is what a real man is, or I'll get to feel like a real man. Pornography creates so much insecurity and yet it is such a, a warm blankie for so many people as well, creating a lot of security or giving the person an experience of feeling powerful. And I think, yeah, that contradiction creates like loneliness, trauma, or neither one of those. And people just go on with their lives. I think there's a, like those three, either three impacts that kind of, I think porn itself just produces for, I think mostly men um, in this case, and mostly cis hetero white men when we're talking about mainstream porn and that in those insecurities and that the sense of loneliness, if you project it outward, then you're just creating more violence. If it's that overt and if, if it's that harmful, I think you can be like have that sense of loneliness or have some sense of like trauma or insecurity and still try to heal yourself from that. But I think porn, if you keep consuming porn, then you're just staying in that kind of in that space. But also you might not be affected as well, like you like you've said. So I think that's really kind of cool to think about. Yeah, because I think there's some dudes that are like, you know, I just watch a little porn and masturbate and they go to sleep. Like that's the only function that porn has in my life. And I think that's, I don't know if that's okay necessarily because that still hints at like, I need this to go to sleep as an addiction pattern. So we're here, we're not saying everyone should stop watching porn right now because it's all bad. <laughs> it's not really what we're saying, although it might, it might help, but we're not saying that, right? What we're saying is there are very clear impacts of porn and it's, it seems like it's really difficult to figure that out. And I think I'm going to ask Chris here in a second, but what we're saying is we want you to really critically examine what it is that you're consuming as, as it relates to pornography, because I don't, if there's a person out there who identifies as a man who hasn't watched any porn at all, I think I've yet to meet them. Yeah. <laughs> like, so we have to then really consider critically what it is that we're consuming through porn as men. Chris, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about why is it so hard to study the effects of pornography and what are some of the 
talk about some of the more clinical barriers to understanding the effects of porn and trying to understand something that's like super important. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot. Cause we want answers. Like we're asking a ton of questions. We're complicating it all. And we don't really have tangible results in terms of saying this is one of the effects at least. And if this is the, the mold that you happen to fit as a person, then these are the signs that you have to look out for. Or like this person consumed a hundred hours of porn in one week and come out the other side. And it seems like, okay, versus this person consumed a hundred hours of porn in one week, uh, exaggeration, obviously, and came out the other side, completely like traumatizing a different person. I want to know, can we, have a tangible more like I guess a a more statistical or qualitative answer to some of our questions around what is the impact of porn consumption Mm -hmm. well as someone who is not a researcher but as a white cis hetero man I'm going to comment on it anyway um, because it's what we do um (laughs) We, we, I mean, right? Like, I'm gonna, I'm not a researcher or an expert, or and I know nothing about this anyway. But I'm gonna say something anyway. Um, You're the closest proxy we got to this. So, I think the conversation around porn is just really hard to have, let alone having doing research, unbiased, non-value laden research. I think okay. when with a lot of the stuff that you see, like some, I don't know, when somebody's throwing out like statistics and you trace it back to who originated that study or who did that research, it comes from a value-laden organization. I mean, some of the anti-porn research comes from specific religious organizations. It's people who have an agenda. So I just don't know that we have yet to see a whole lot of research that's not just anecdotal information, right? Because we can get a ton of research by self-report. If you want to sit down and talk to somebody and interview people about their experiences with pornography, rather than doing like a clinical trial where you are trying to find like people large enough sample size, expose them to a certain amount of pornography, and then do a post-test or something like that afterwards. Do like good researchers mitigate their own value system as much as possible? I haven't seen that. We don't have a lot of good information. We have anecdotal evidence. And and that's that's what I'm talking from as well. Right. Are the people who, like I'm talking to people who have identified porn as a problem in their life. And that's who I'm spending a lot of time talking to. And so I have certain conclusions that I'm coming to based on that. So I think like morality and prudishness, we are a prude country socially. Um, You see it like in the sex positivity movement. Is it possible? This is another question. Is it possible to be sex positive in anti-porn? Because I think Hmm. if you were to talk to like folks in the sex positive movement, you would have to be really careful with how you deconstructed pornography. Because if you were shaming it, right, as soon as you start shaming sexual activity and people's desires and people wanting to explore their sex life and stuff like that, you're out of the sex positivity movement. So I don't know. There's a, I think politically it's really challenging. It feels like a moral argument around, and I don't want to get involved in any of that stuff. And so I try really hard to just stick with, these are the consequences that the person is experiencing. That's my escape hatch. I'm dealing with people who have already identified it as a problem in their lives. And what I'm saying to most people when I'm out doing presentations and things like that is be a critical consumer, pay attention. There's lots of times where we're experiencing negative consequences on our lives, but we're in denial about those things for one reason or another, or we're hiding from those things. We feel ashamed about those things or in kind of the loop of pornography, making you feel insecure, but then also creating this sense of powerfulness as well. Like there's all kinds of reasons why I might be missing some of the consequences that are in my life. Now, I know I didn't answer your question. Totally Maybe fine. that's another thing that I do, but. <laughs> well, I think that leads us into like, can you then help us and help people 
people who are listening identify when they should come in to seek help for porn addiction and then name some of the resources that they can go to for that? Yeah, for sure. I think whether it's pornography or it's drugs and alcohol or it's relationships or when something is having a negative impact on your life in a way that you don't want it to, it's time to do something about that, whatever that thing happens to be. I mean, if you're working on pornography addiction and you want to, or if you want to decrease your pornography use and you're saying, well, I'm not sure if it's a big deal for me or not, why don't you unplug and give yourself a week or give yourself a month and say, all right, I'm just going to try it without and see what happens. What, what, what happens to your emotional state? What happens to your relationships? Like do an, do a cleanse, do an experiment without like it just, I think when I'm thinking about like stages of change, um, people are in the pre-contemplative <laughs> stage when you're thinking like, this doesn't have a negative impact on my life. If you're thinking, uh, it might have a negative impact on my life. I'm not sure. You're kind of in the contemplative stage then. Okay. Let's take it out of your life and just see, does that illuminate anything? Does that show you anything? If you want to do something about it and you want to decrease your pornography use, or you want to change your pornography use, try that. See how it goes for you. If you're successful, great, more power to you. Go move on. If you're not successful, I think it's for folks who are saying like, I am not in control of this in the way that I would like to be. It's impacting my life in a way that I don't want it to. I either don't know what to do about it or I'm suffering or my partner is suffering or something about my relationships or some, it's having some consequence in my life that I don't want and I'm not able to make any changes. I think it's worth then talking to a counselor and I'm biased as a counselor. This is what I do. So of course it feeds into that. There are online programs that people can do. I know that there are some religious based programs that people can go through if that fits for them and their identities. There are groups that people can go to. And I think you can also go to someone that you trust in your personal life. Just even opening up and talking about it could have positive impact in terms of either relief or even more encouragement. Because I think men or people in general who are in that contemplative stage are really just kind of looking for validation that they are contemplating in the first place. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a numerous times in my life where I'm like, hey, I'm kind of struggling with this. I'm not sure what to do. I actually know what I should do, but I just need someone else to say, nope, you should probably do that. Mm -hmm. Well, because there's so much shame and there's so much stigma. And I don't want to get all Brene Brown on people, but like shame can't <laughs> exist if you name it and share it with somebody else. I think it's a good point. Like just going to somebody that you trust in your life. Sometimes what oftentimes happens with men that they go to their fellow men who are also using pornography and it becomes personal mm. for them. And they're like, you don't have a problem because right. if, if you had a problem, then then that then I might have a problem. And I know I don't have a problem. So therefore you don't have a problem. <laughs> so I, okay. I think it's but I but I do think it's important to share this experience with other people. And if it's other people that you trust, like just going and having some kind of dialogue sounds good, too. I thought, yeah, I think about like how you were kind of saying, like, if I have a problem then they have a problem or vice versa. and so. I remember even having a conversation like I got caught with pornography by my mom and then I went straight to my dad and said, and he was like, it's fine. Like, it's kind of normal. <laughs> and I was like, is it though? <laughs> like, I don't, I'm kind of confused. Like, can you help me out? And he's like, well, I used to do that when you're, I was your age. And I was like, yeah, but if my mom's not okay with it, but you're okay with it, then what's going on here? That made me almost really confused. And then I was just like, well, and I'm confused, but I guess my dad said it was okay, so I'm going to keep doing it. And so I think it was, yeah, that deflection of like, okay, if this is a problem for you, then it's a problem for me, but I don't want to say it's a problem, so I'm going to avoid it until it's tell you it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think so. when it's a problem is... Mm. What I and I'm not blaming say, my dad. No, like, not at all, because somebody could use pornography... Like somebody can go out partying and drinking and I'm going to drink to a blackout, you know, two times a week. 
and I don't have a problem. And somebody, the very next person over can go do the exact same thing and they could identify it as a problem. Right. And so what I wanted to say was it's a problem when you identify it as a problem, but I have lots of problems that I have not identified yet that I probably should. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just so individually based and that's maybe it's another escape hatch, but that's what I'm trying to talk to other people about that when you feel that your values or the person that you think you are is in conflict with the things that you do, oh, well, let's have a conversation about that and see if we can bring those things into alignment more rather than going to somebody else and saying, do you think I have a problem? And having them trying to say yes or no with your dad's situation, he's like, well, you know what? I have... I, I did the same thing when I was your age. I experienced no negative consequences. Uh, it probably isn't a problem for you. Okay. He is making his conclusions based on his own personal experiences. Yeah. A totally natural thing to do. That mm. might not be the same experience for you. You know, right. Jake, you've been doing men in the movement stuff and you've been trying to critique masculinities and all that kind of stuff. And it might be a bigger issue for you because you have more investment, more awareness, different value system, like all those kinds of things might mm. be happening. For it's sure. worth having a conversation with whether that's with a professional or just a friend or family member or somebody important in your life. Right. And I think it's especially important to have those conversations intentionally with men. We talk about in Men of the Movement a lot with that if we are being vulnerable only with women, then we were putting that emotional burden on them to do the, the heavy lifting of taking care of, of us, basically. taking care of us. Yeah. And basically it just goes back into this like patriarchal kind of dynamic of like women doing the work for men. And when that's men, that's our own. If I go to my partner and say, this was going on with me, I might say like, I need your support with this. Then that is putting a lot on her. But if I say, this is what's going on with me and I'm seeking help for it. I just want to let you know that this is going on. That might be a different story. Nice. Yeah. I think there's, I think if you are reaching out in, intentionally with men, then that's really important. And then I also think that's an active process of deconstructing your own masculinities within it too. Do you think we've done that a little bit? When, here today, now talking on this podcast, what do you mean? Are we taking too soft of a stance on pornography? Like, do you think? <laughs> no, 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 no. We actually, I, I guess I'm talking about me because I, I feel like I'm the one who's kind of dancing in the middle. Like, pornography is is actually really problematic. The mainstream pornography that we're talking about today, the power dynamics in there are dangerous, and we're not good enough to separate between fantasy and not fantasy. And so, I guess sometimes when I'm I'm trying to have a dialogue with folks and I would like to help people become the people that they really want to be. So me as a counselor. And so I want to talk about the advantages to pornography because I want to open up the conversation. I want to open up the space. If I come at a conversation and I say, hey, I'm super anti-pornography, by the way, I think it's really problematic, even though a lot of people do it. They know it's problematic as well. It shuts down the door to the conversation and I feel like I, I lose people then. But I also feel like, no, are we, are we not taking a firm enough stance? Or, or is this another example of men not standing up? And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm really talking about me in, in this moment. Like, am I not standing up by saying, Hey, look, these are the negative consequences of pornography and you all need to be aware of that. We talked about some of the problems with pornography, but inherently there's so many power dynamics that reinforces male supremacy and white supremacy and pornography is a hyperized version of that. And if I consume it on any regular basis whatsoever, those things are going to creep into my subconscious and they will change how I see the world, how I see myself and how I interact with other people. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't get I think it's contextual. Like Chris, you as a counselor, you have 
to have that door open because the best way for you to help men out here is to, because if you take an anti-porn stance, then men might not come to you for counseling for porn. So I think there's a ton of value in you saying like, we have to talk about the positive effects as well as the negative effects. And then if you're feeling like it's a problem, let's talk. Like, I think that's a strong stance for some men, right? Mm -hmm. My stance has to be a little different. The bar is different for us. If we're valuing men actually just kind of talking to each other about their pornography use as an advancement in male culture, a positive advancement in male culture, then that's the bar we're going to have to set. We're hoping that we've modeled multiple conversations here of when you talk about the positive effects of porn, then you have to talk about marginalized identities. Go do that. If you want to critique porn, and talk about the potential negative effects of pornography. We've done some of that. So now you have some points of conversation to enter in with. So we're doing two things. Hopefully Jake and I are doing two things is we are hoping to encourage men to open up about things that we don't often open up about as a process of social justice. And two, modeling ways in which that you can have that conversation with your men if you feel like you align more or less in terms of the way you want to talk about it. And I think you've kind of brought up, Chris, like the, and also kind of have changed my viewpoint a little bit with how I view pornography in general in this, well, this in this context of mainstream pornography. I still think, yeah, there is those problematic impacts that it has on men. And that has been kind of my experience. But I also do, yeah, I do agree with you that, and I believe that you are right, that it has some positive impacts for men that are a little better than maybe my circumstances circumstances or my experiences. And that's totally, totally cool. And I think the way if it's externalized and projected differently than like, oh, this is like, this is like something to do and I just do it. And then I just kind of go on with my day and it's fine. Then that's good. But then if it's like, if we can't disconnect, like you said, like the fantasy world and our real world, then that's where it gets kind of skewed. I guess it's worth just throwing a shout out to all the folks who have come before who have tried to have this conversation. You know, the Michael Kimmels and the Gail Dines and Robert Jensen's Andrew Dworkin and Robert, you know, all those Mm. folks, lots and lots has been written and pornography has been critiqued long before the three of us came around for sure um, by men, women, folks of uh, all identities. So yeah, we're not, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just, I don't know. I just riding the wave. Awesome. Uh, So thank you so much, Chris. Um, Your wisdom and your knowledge has been really helpful for this conversation and it's awesome to have you in the studio. So um, I've been really pumped for this day personally. After having this conversation, we also want to know know more about you. So can you tell us about your journey through masculinity? Yeah. um, You know, I think like lots of folks, I was socialized pretty unconsciously around what boys are or what men are, especially, you know, white cis hetero men, which are, def- you know, my identities. I think one of the big lessons that I kind of learned through like my developing years is that I am the generic and everybody else is other. So like I'm, I'm the generic version of man as a white, you know, cis hetero man. And so I learned about other people's identities as something that was other than like the default. And it was like a huge part. I mean, it was just like, and I didn't know it. I mean, I still don't really know it, what the impacts have been of that piece, but it was just so important because I see everybody else as something that's different or other. And I think it's really rooted in male supremacy and white supremacy that I'm, I'm on this pedestal. And I, and so it took a long time for me to even 
scratch the surface. I'm a super slow learner. And so I had to learn the same lesson like over and over and over again of like, no, and I'm still unpacking what that is. That explains a lot actually about our relationship. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a really frustrating person to be friends with um, or to talk to because I, yeah, it takes me a long time. But I think that's part of that is maybe my intelligence level or lack of critical analysis skills. But some of it is just how hard I have been socialized and how dormant my critical parts of my brain have been for so much of my life. And so it really wasn't, it really wasn't until graduate school when I was an intern and I was going to the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, the Office of Women Programs Studies back in the day that I started to, I don't know that anybody talked to me about male privilege. There were things that I inherently knew were problematic. I knew growing up that my dad never did the dishes. The the kids, we had to clear the table and we helped and my mom did the dishes or the kids had to do the dishes and my dad just got to go into his room and start watching TV. And I knew that that something was wrong about that or that didn't feel right, probably because I suffered at the hands of it because I was stuck doing the dishes and he wasn't. But I knew that there was something about gender, but that was as deep as I got until somebody started talking to me about male privilege and male supremacy. And then it was like, oh, and then, yeah, I mean, we, lots of folks have had this experience of like, oh, wait, what about that? Oh, what about that? Oh, wait a minute. This is every interaction I've ever had with anybody ever. Right. Oh, this is, oh, <laughs> yeah. okay. Like, yeah. And then it was like, I, you know, that was, gender was such a jumping off point for me into other identities. And like I said, I'm a slow learner and I'm just scratching the surface on so many things, but that, that was my entry point into trying to understand the impact social identities have on how the world sees us and how the world treats us. And then in return, how we see the rest of the world, like all of my opinions, all of the things that I have ever thought are in the context of all of these identities. Like that was, uh, that's still, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the ripple effects are kind of still continuing. Definitely. You mentioned that the ability to be critical in your brain had been dormant until it got awakened. So my question for you is, can things like critical thought and self-reflection be learned behaviors? And what was that process like for you? I think so. That was not something that I learned in my family to push up against something or to challenge something or to critically analyze, like, what are the dynamics of this thing? I remember one of the folks that I met kind of early on, (laughs) her kids were allowed to watch like Disney movies or mainstream movies, but they had to fill out a worksheet after. That's awesome. I was like, oh yeah. Yeah. Her name was Joan and she was a a fantastic person. I learned a lot from her, especially around parenting, but her kids were allowed to engage in mainstream things, but you had to fill out this worksheet and we had to have a discussion afterwards. And of course the kids rolled their eyes and were like, are you serious? But it was something that helped foster. Okay. Let's look at the race, race dynamics in Mulan. Uh, you know, that they had watched. I think that was one of the specific examples and they had to unpack it. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. I never had that experience growing up and I didn't have that experience in the the public school system where I was as well either. It just was not something that I was taught. I think especially having so many dominant identities, it was so beneficial to me to never think of those things, to never, to never critically analyze. That would have been scary. That would have been potentially creating some anxiety or insecurity in me had I done that. Whereas I think folks with marginalized identities, even if they didn't have somebody teaching, this is just a guess because I'm speaking outside of my own experience. That is something that is part of daily life, critical analysis, right? I, I didn't suffer a, a at the survival hands. tactic for sure. And I never suffered at the hands. I only received benefit. I mean, it's that idea of privilege 
being like the wind that's blowing at your back, like a tailwind and it feeling like not even feeling anything benefiting from it, but in a completely unconscious way. So why the heck would I ever want to turn around and get a headwind if I didn't have, have to. Right. What was the moment that you kind of knew you had to build this level of consciousness around gender, around identity, around social justice? Like, I think you explained it a little bit, but I'm just curious. So like, maybe what's that like snap moment? You're like, well, I need to kind of learn this more. I think there have been, I mean, there's so many because it's one of those things that I have to relearn over and over and over again. And every time you think you got it, like I do something that hurts people, it hurts people that I care about. I'm watching dynamics and, you know, I, I think, I, yeah, there's just been, I, I think the moments that stick out to me and this is so selfish and so egocentric and so rooted in male and white supremacy are the, what are you laughing? What are you about to say? <laughs> Not that. <laughs> just the qualifying stuff. I know you enough to know that you don't have to qualify, but I forgot that we're in a podcast setting. So thank you for doing that. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, shut up and just get to the point. <laughs> it's your but story. I, I, that, I, I okay, tried to okay. hold it back. That's my bad. I think <laughs> so many of the lessons that I learned are, are rooted in, uh, what was they saying? It's selfish and egocentric of me, but the things that, because it, what matters to me are the times that I have done something to hurt somebody else, especially what somebody that I care about. And like, well, what the f- is that about? Like, why do I have to cause harm to people that I care about for me to get this? Why can't I get it? Why, 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 why can't I get it by just hearing of other experiences that people have, but those are the ones, those are the ones that matter to me. Are the, those the one, other ones that have caused the most activity from my lens, which is really sad. And when I, and I know that when people hear me say that, that's really depressing. It's really sad and potentially really hurtful to people. Yeah. It's one of the most insidious aspects of privilege, right? Like other voices don't matter. It's, uh, or, and we're lucky when people with privileged identities can feel the hurt that they've caused other people, people in their lives. And that's just a function of privilege and it sucks. And thank you for saying that. How has like your journey of masculinity impacted your fatherhood or your attitude around being a father? Yeah, for sure. You know what? I mean, to kind of go back. So for those of you who don't know, I, I have three children. I think back to what we were saying before about one of those kind of conflicts of masculinity is like that you do these things that you don't want to that you know better, but it, you kind of act them out. And so I know that like, I try to be really intentional around parenting with children. So as far as I know, until my children are telling me different, I'm, I've gendered my children as uh, oldest daughter and then two younger boys. And so I'm really looking at like, what is the modeling, especially for these boys? I mean, for my daughter as well, but around, this is what a man does. And so one of the things, cause this never happened in my family, but it was something that I was really committed to is telling my children about mistakes that I've made. And I remember sitting one night after we were reading stories and uh, one of I think it was my daughter who had had a, something really embarrassing had happened to her that day. And she asked, has anything embarrassing ever happened to you? And I was like, I'm, you know, I'm like, this is really important as I'm going to tell a story. And like, I finished my story about a time when I was really embarrassed and it was really vulnerable to share. And I didn't have any models of men doing this. This is not, my dad was, he wouldn't have never shared that he was scared or that he had made a mistake or anything like that. And so I was like, okay, I want to make sure that I do that. And like, after I finished my little story, my son goes, do you have any more stories? And my daughter's like, well, do you have any more? And I had to come up with more. Like I kept going and they, it was just 
so, it was so good for us to be in this space of vulnerability. And it's really challenging because, you know, you know, if you have my children there, they'll be the first one to be like, oh yeah, well you made this mistake too. And it's like, (laughs) well, I shouldn't have told you that, but okay, you're right. And so I, like, I really tried to, to not, I'm not an expert on everything. I'm not perfect. Like I'd really try to share that. And like, when I make mistakes, I want to be the first one to apologize. And I make a ton of mistakes that I have to apologize a lot for a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of practice at this. And, and it's always interesting to me when, when I start making rationalizations about why I shouldn't apologize in this scenario. No, 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 no. I want to go right down, get down on one knee because they're a lot shorter than me and look them in the eye and make an apology because that's not something that men ever did in my life. And I'm trying to reestablish. And then I think the other things are like, I really wanted to learn some lessons from Joan around, Hey, we're going to look at the rest of the world. Um, We're going to look at holidays. We want to cultivate that skill of critical analysis. I'm not going to be there to have an opinion on any, everything that pretty soon they're well off the farm, you know, they're going to be, you know, they're in school system and things like that. And so they're out of the home plenty of the time. And then the older they get, the more that's going to happen. So it's not the lessons. It's the, how do you figure out the lessons? How do you do the critical analysis? And and I feel like that's, I'm, I'm there uh, trying to train skills, not trying to cultivate specific opinions or allegiances or anything like that. So I think that's a piece and I'm a, uh, I'm a, not a very good father. Uh, you know, like I, I know because I think, But maybe this is another piece of masculinity too. Like the more you know, the worse you feel because it's like, (laughs) oh gosh, because there were 25 times this morning as we were getting ready for school that I male privileged all over the place or that I, that I, that I, that I somehow contradicted all the things that I'm intentionally trying to do. And it fell apart kind of in, in this unconscious or maybe even a conscious way. And so I think, I don't know. So I, I try really hard, but I know. You know I think you're doing a good job. Yeah. Well, I know, but you're not, in, not you're not behind closed doors ever, which is well. fine. <sighs> Well, I I think that speaks to the importance of, I'm really starting to hate this buzzword of doing the work, quote unquote. We need to train ourselves to make it second nature so we don't male privilege all over the place in times of crisis or in times of needs or in times of stress. Because in times of need or in times of stress, like that's when I feel like it's like unconscious. Yeah. There are plenty of times where it's completely and totally conscious. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I'm, and like this, I am actually going to abuse my male privilege or use my male privilege in the abuse of other people in a conscious way. And I, like, I would love to say that it's only unconscious when I make those mistakes and when I step in it, but there are times where it's like, it is conscious and it's for advantages. And I, and I hate that. And I think that's, that's where another level of the work is, or is around like building an accountability and like, what do you do in those moments when you've done that in a totally conscious way? Cause it's totally unfair to say, oh, I need to expand my consciousness. And that's going to be the thing that stops me from male privileging all over the place. So thank you for sharing, Chris. Um, we know that we're more than just our masculinities. So we want to ask you some quick rapid fire questions if that's okay. Okay. Guess I'm ready for that. <laughs> cool. If you were to have one skill, what would that be? A skill? Yeah, like anything. More like something realistic, though. <laughs> um, I would wish I were a better artist. 
Um, I'm not an artist at all. I'm a very creative thinker. Like I, I have a creative kind of personality, but we, we, I was at an art museum recently and I'm just looking at this stuff and I'm like, wow, the, the level of skill, the level of knowledge. I think artists are amazing with the depth that they can think about things and then how they can kind of like use whatever medium they're using. Like ah, skill, art, sorry, that's this the, is supposed no, to be rapid fire cool. and I can no, talk for a cool. What's your go-to dance move? Um, You know, I do like the kind of like just the bop from side to side. I'm gigantic. <laughs> and so when I'm on the dance floor, Floor. I'm very visible, so I'm super self-conscious as a dancer. Um, my partner and I actually met swing dancing. This was back in the day when swing <laughs> dancing was cool, because um, it totally was cool for those of you who are too young to remember, or maybe you weren't even born yet. There was a there was like a renaissance of swing dancing. I'm not talking about the 40s. I'm like like there was a renaissance of swing dancing in the late 90s where cool people thought it was still cool and we did it. So anyway, so I, I would say like I'm just a bop from side to side, <laughs> kind of like awesome. this. Yeah, and, but I can pull out a swing dancing move if I have have to. Gotcha. Nice. Favorite food? Oh, pizza for sure. Um, I grew up outside of Chicago and like pan pizza and especially like Chicago style deep dish pizza. Yeah. If you, I can't, you can't have pizza here then? No, there's no. no pizza in Fort Collins or Colorado that's at that level right. for okay. me. I mean, there's good thin crust pizza here, but even then, I don't know if there's really good pizza. I feel you. Good pizza. Okay. Can you describe the feeling you had when the Cubs won the World Series in 2016? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, w- <laughs> I was, I think I was by myself. Um, okay. Well, I think it was, um, uh, they were watching like, porn. <laughs> no, no, my that's team was winning. Thoughts, um, well, that's not true. They, they, anyway, um, I mean, it was, it, you know, there was a, for Cubs fans, there was this guy who, while the Cubs were in kind of like working their way toward the World Series in 2016, somebody had, the guy had written this article about how, like, yes, as Cubs fans, like we are cheering for our team to win the World Series. I kind of just wish that they would have won like on my deathbed because like it was <laughs> the thing that made them so unique. We had the longest losing streak of any team in sports history. Like that drought between 1908 and 2016 was the longest of any, any, any sports franchise. And so that was kind of special. And as a social worker, like so much of my identity was wrapped up in rooting for a team that never wins <laughs> that you start every year at spring training. And you're like, yeah, this year is the year. When I said that, I believed it like, oh, this year was the year. And then you inevitably get, you know, disappointed and hurt. And we went through many, many years of enormous amount of disappointment. And so like that feeling was, there was a feeling of conflict. Like I was so excited. Interesting. The celebration was there and it was so wonderful. And we had won the world series. Like that was a really big deal. But there was also of like a sense of loss too around one of the, cause what so are the re- an identity crisis basically a little bit like, like Red Sox fans, when they won the world series after a huge long drought, the Red Sox now, uh, they're just like every other team. They're not just like the Yankees. I mean, we're, we're not, I don't want to insult Red Sox fans that much, but pretty close. They're, they're just like any other team now. Yeah. They're that rich. And I think the Cubs are, are kind of headed in that direction as well. Like I'm still holding on to the years and, you know, in the eighties, you know, when I was really developing my Cubs fandom and like the loss and the disappointment and, yeah. and the heartbreak. Favorite um, card game. Card game. Yeah. I mean, uh, 500. I haven't played it. 
Yeah, I've heard it's, of it. it's kind of like it's kind of like euchre, um, but with ten cards instead of five. Um, okay. So it's, there's there's a little bit more strategy. I love playing euchre. I mean, definitely in my family, like the first game you learned how to play um, was cribbage. And then you learned how cribbage. to play a card game called rook, and then you learned rook. euchre, yeah. and then you know you ultimately learned five hundred. And I think the one above that is like bridge. And I yeah. I've tried to learn bridge in a couple ways, but um, so I think five hundred is kind of like euchre, but it's got a little bit more strategy to it. But um, when my partner was in the Peace Corps. And I went and visited and I was there for a long time. All the Peace Corps volunteers, when they got together, you just threw down a game of 500. And so mm-hmm. I played a million games of 500 in my right. lifetime. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, Chris. We hey, really, thank really you all. Thanks it. for doing yeah, the podcast you. and setting this up and, and taking a shot at trying to get your voices out there. I think oh. that's really cool and yeah. important. Well, thanks for thank downloading you. and not listening. We appreciate that. Too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, if I get around to it, I might listen to one or two. <laughs> We'll see. Are there oh, any he good said ones? one or two. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It depends on We're the special. first one. Yeah. That might double I the listenership. St- I won't start with episode one of season one since I heard that one. That was one sucks. Yeah. That one was not yeah, the strongest effort, but uh, you know, I might get midway into season one. I'll start there. Word. Thank you. Peace. So that will do it for part one of the porn series for Do You Even Live Bro? Men Exercising Social Justice. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for a podcast, please email WGAC at colostate.edu. That's WGAC at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. Huge shout out to the partnership between the Women and Gender Advocacy Center and KCSU here at Colorado State University. These are the folks that even allow this podcast to happen. For more content about masculinities, check out meninthemovement.blogspot.com. And for more information about the WGAC, go to wgac.colostate.edu. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Music production by Xavier Hadley, a.k.a. Zavley. Check him out at soundcloud.com slash Xavier Hadley. That's X-A-V-I-E-R-H-A-D-L-E-Y. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you. stuff that chris said <laughs> can you believe that guy what what was how wrong many, with him how many times did he say the word hard anyway. <laughs> no jake said it it's really hard for me and that's where so i laughed almost lofted. Yeah. i wasn't thinking about that no obviously yeah. you weren't but I, I, carl wasn't either and i i saw you laughing and then you said yeah then, anyway. <laughs> he said hard so many times <laughs> Yeah, it's so wow, hard. okay, I don't it's remember. So hard. So hard. Okay, well, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Interviews.